Welcome to the DGR Podcast. I'm your host, David Gray. Hello guys, welcome back. David here. I always say David here. Of course David is here. Obviously David is here. But uh, I do feel like it's a nice polite way to start the show. So I'll probably keep saying that. So David is here. Um, today I have a great guest, great podcast for you. We have Daniel Back, the creator of Jump Science. Um, you might be aware of Daniel's work, you might not, but uh, you should give him a follow on Instagram. He's an athletic development coach. As you can maybe deduce by the name Jump Science, he is a coach who's worked with a lot of jumping athletes over the years, um, particularly in the kind of basketball world, the dunkers world. It's a really cool world, in my opinion, to, to look into and look at the coaches who are doing well there because the numbers don't lie either i can either you help me dunk better or you didn't you help me jump higher or you didn't so there's no fluff and daniel is definitely a, a no-nonsense coach now sorry there is some fluff sometimes with some coaches but daniel is not one of those people and um he's a very 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 smart coach in the in that world and in the track and field world as well he started a new page called speed science which is worth checking out as well um so we spoke about how he classifies athletes into hip versus knee dominant athletes it's actually a good follow-up to my episode with tim riley because tim and i spoke about about that a little bit there and tim and daniel are good friends and they train some athletes together so kind of daniel spoke about hip versus knee how he classifies them the exercises he might use and um plyometric variations he might use we spoke about transfer of training and sports specificity which is a, a good hard topic to discuss but a good topic to discuss we spoke about eccentric training fast versus slow eccentrics when you might want to make use of momentum which is something that you don't hear anyone talk about usually and we spoke we actually kind of stumbled across a nice topic which was ankle mobility pros and cons of increasing ankle mobility and when you might want to decrease ankle mobility so i actually found that very very enjoyable little chat and an enjoyable podcast as a whole and i think there's definitely lots of things that, that you can learn don't forget we're still running our little promotion which is 20 percent off my membership site dgr interactive so use the code dgr podcast for 20 percent off go and type dgr interactive into your phone now and um you'll get you'll get access to our membership site which breaks down any amount of movement biomechanics anything you can think of really i'll answer your questions you get you get two videos a week and you get access to the the full library of videos i'm trying to keep the videos short and sharp so there's no fluff you can go Within 5 to 10 to 15 minutes, you can learn about a topic and you'll never forget it. You'll know it. And we're trying to we're trying to help the people who are interested in being in the like top 1 to 5% of movement professionals in the world who are actually interested in getting smarter, learning this stuff and helping their clients. So don't forget DGR podcast for 20% off. Go and sign up for DGR Interactive right now. Um, apart from that, um, get, make sure you give Daniel a little follow. Uh, jump science and make sure you have a listen to the podcast and please give it a share if you do like it so without further ado here is daniel back from jump science daniel thank you for joining me how are you doing doing well doing well looking forward to getting into some stuff yeah man me too me too definitely i've been following you for a while and i'm a big fan of all your work so i'm looking forward to the chat do you want to give us the like one minute elevator pitch as to who you are and what you're doing uh yeah so as a young kid played a lot of sports got pretty obsessed with basketball when i was about 12 years old started jump training at 13 uh you know dunking on a low rim in the driveway and then squatting with some old weights that i had in my my basement bedroom 
and uh, had a lot of success as a teenager, you know, gained probably a foot of my vertical in a year, um, dunked in eighth grade, got hooked on the process of jump training, um, started, you know, Googling, looking stuff up, whatever, kept trying to train myself, ended up as known as like a guy who could jump high in high school. Um, at 15 was when I decided I wanted to make a career out of it. So it was pretty early on. So uh, I, I went on to, you know, get an exercise science degree, um, started training people in college, and it uh, just kind of snowballed into a uh, YouTube channel, uh, website, Instagram. Um, yeah, this jump science brand. And then uh, in 2014, I moved to uh, Austin, Texas, where I found a job at a speed training facility, or they're known for speed. So that's given me a chance to not only keep doing the jump stuff, but to get into the speed realm as well and uh, get a lot of experience there working with athletes who are more focused on that. So yeah, a lot of uh, speed and jump training background at this point and a lot of uh, try to be like a, you know, a science-based approach to that and understanding why things happen as well as I can and using that information to try to, uh, you know, solve the puzzle for people going forward. That's, yeah. that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, is that is that is that why you have that new Instagram account then? Speed Science. You you're you're kind of nudging yeah. that a bit more. It, yeah, that was just um, I, I you know got the sense that I had people who were more interested in jump stuff, and then people who were more interested in speed stuff, and so I just said let's put them in two different places so we don't alienate the followers. You know, with when you go on a uh, you know, six posts about low heel recovery and, and sprinting, you know, I don't know if my volleyball player followers are interested in that. So just, just a way to, you know, target, target the content for people better. You get a lot of, you probably get a lot of coaches or people like me, like looking at your content, but then you do, you do get tons of obviously just athletes then who are trying to figure stuff, some stuff out for themselves and, and using your program. So, Yes. If it was just coaches, you can put it all into one place, probably because they are just going to be interested in your thoughts on all different types of training. But then right. athletes, I suppose, are, are looking for more specific. Yeah, especially like the dunk community. Yeah. Um, you know, I think about them. It's like they really just want to see how to jump higher. You know, they want to see people get strong and dunk and all this stuff. And then, yeah, you start talking about the intricacies of speed technique and stuff. And it's just like, I don't think they're, uh, they're not interested in that. So. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, some, some of them with like a track background, maybe, but yeah. Yeah. There's such a, I didn't realize this, like there's, there's such a hunger among those athletes, like the dunkers and the basketballers for like jump training isn't a big thing in Ireland because basketball isn't a big thing. And like, if I right. go Gaelic football or hurling or soccer or rugby, I could benefit from jumping higher, but it's not me at the court, like where my friend can dunk and I can't. And I'm like, I, I have to get, I have yeah. to get I dunk. So there's, there's dunk, our jumping wasn't a big part of my development at all. It's just outside of the sport, like I'm doing some box jumps and stuff in the gym, you know? Right. We missed something there. But yeah, you don't have that, like that jumping dream, like this, this goal you're trying to reach. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. Um, I think we missed that, like that, that, that uh that part of the plyometric development and athletic development like actually actually jumping um could be is a big deal i think was there anything you found when you were younger like that when you first when you put on that foot on your vertical or whatever what what were you doing at that stage 
Um, I was doing squats and calf raises five days a week <laughs> and then just dunk, dunking in the driveway. Yeah. Um, then uh, I had another spurt of success when I was 15 and that was uh, squats, calf raises, and then like jump squats, uh, jumping up my stairs, things like that. Um, looking back, if I had, you know, if I had the knowledge that I have now, I would definitely have been sprinting a lot more. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, just being in, being in basketball and not really other organized sports, I wasn't really getting speed feedback. And so like on the, on the, the tail end of that big increase in vertical that I had when I was, you know, 13 to 14 years old on the tail end of that, I had actually gotten slower relative to my uh my soccer playing teammates Mm -hmm. yeah so you know we were all obviously growing changing bodies a lot at that time and i was jumping way higher but they got a lot faster than i did at that time i I remember losing in a race to them uh where i I used to be you know pretty much even and i was like oh maybe i uh you know (laughs) maybe i need to run more but uh, then, yeah, just once I got to high school, all I did was play basketball. So it was never really an issue. I mean, I was, I was one of the fastest basketball players out there. So it didn't really wasn't really highlighted. But yeah, looking back, I would definitely do a lot more speed focused stuff. Was that was that? Do you think you got slower relative to them just because you weren't actually sprinting, or do you think like there was a some of your jump training was getting in the way? I presume it was that you weren't sprinting. Yeah, it's it's hard to say for sure. I mean, definitely from just from not sprinting, but also, I mean, squatting five days a week will do something to you. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, I yeah, I don't think I got slower overall. I just got less fast than they did. Um, But yeah, it's it's hard to say exactly exactly the impact there. Yeah. Why um why would you put in more sprinting? now if you are would you would you do that if you were working with someone whose just goal was to just dunk would you put in some sprinting in their training uh i would definitely use some yes yeah um because i think there is a you know there's a physical quality that you develop from sprinting because it's fast off the ground yeah um that's you know what i typically call elasticity and um yeah what i've learned is that that is one i mean it can enhance your jumping um two it's not developed by just you know like any explosive training or like any plyometric you want to pick um you really need volume of foot contacts that are fast off the ground to get it you know what what taught me that was my experience with track athletes um you know we're coming off of kind of the the being familiar with the basketball athlete and and jump training and, and looking at people who can jump and then seeing oh this track athlete actually doesn't jump spectacularly but he can run way faster than me yeah and it's like where you know how's he doing that because he's not stronger he's not you know he's not doesn't jump spectacularly like he just but he just floats over the ground really easily like what what is that how do we get that mm-hmm. um so yeah that's what kind of taught me that lesson yeah. But then also you see, okay, the guy who can run, uh, run well, but then also you see him take off, off of one leg for a jump. And it's like, oh shoot, <laughs> like they actually, you know, there's some talent there too, even though that's not their thing. Yeah. Like jumping is not even their main thing, but they just, they have this ability to just, you know, pop off the ground really easily. And 
uh, yeah, that can translate into like, oh, that dude just threw down a dunk on a breakaway <laughs> unexpectedly, you know, like I didn't even think he was much of an athlete, but wow. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, there's there's nothing that can compare to what well, you sorry, you just can't train those qualities that you get in sprinting anywhere else. I don't right. think. Um, yeah, it's very, very uh, unique. Yeah, which is why you, pro- you should probably try and as you get older, keep sprinting if you can. Yes, because once you lose it, it's hard to get back. I agree with that entirely. <laughs> what um, what are the when you when you think about like the jump science system, if you call it that, um, what are like the key principles that you would that, that just make that make up that system, I suppose, and, and your philosophy on training? Yeah, so there's a few of them. I mean, the first one is just your specificity principle of you, you got to do the thing. Um, so if you're trying to dunk, you know, you got to go out there and try to dunk or you got to go dunk, dunk on a low rim, you know, but you got to go and do it. Don't don't first seek for like a program or exercises. You know, the first thing you have to do is the thing <laughs> um, and, and and build up a history of doing it. And uh, so that that's really the first principle is, yeah, don't don't think don't think training first. Think, go do the activity first. Mm-hmm. Um, then when it comes to, you know, what you add on to that, then that's where I'm looking at, um, you know, I'm, uh, I promote kind of fundamental things like mobility and strength relative to body weight. And if you have, you know, a jumping background or, or whatever activity background, and then you have mobility and strength to body weight ratio, that's a, you know, that's a big part of the equation right there. You know, that's probably 90% of it right there. Mm-hmm. Um, then from there, it's, it's uh, adding in some of those more subtle physical qualities. Uh, like, yeah, more subtle meaning. Okay, so not not just strength relative to body weight, body weight but now it's the elasticity piece. Okay, so if you're a two-foot jumper and that's kind of your background, let's add some sprinting in to get that lightness on the feet. Um, if you're a, if you're a sprinter and that's your background, let's add some, some plyometrics, some, uh, large impulse jumps, uh, to develop, uh, you know, that, that muscular power section better. Um, so yeah, kind of filling in athletic gaps there mm-hmm. along with the relative strength. Um, and then, uh, and then sort of the other theme of my, I guess my career has been, you know, we do run into these difficulties with getting strength to translate to explosive movements. And we got to find ways to, to manage that. Um, you know, we have this camp of people that, you know, sort of like the conjugate method, right? Where it's just, okay, just train everything all the time, get better at all of it altogether. And that's the solution, you know? Um, and it's like, yeah, that it works well until it doesn't, right? There's cases where it doesn't work. Um, or there's cases where it works for a while and then it starts to, you know, the, the results starts to, uh, start to fade away and you have to find solutions in that department. So that's where you've, you, uh, you'll see me talking about <laughs> taking breaks, breaks from strength training, um, or, or, uh, you know, modifying your strength training to make sure that it's not being disruptive to your athletic pursuits, um, uh, I've used the phrase like maximize how athletic you can be at a given strength level. 
so yeah, you'll see me talking about that concept. Um, and that's, that's a big one. And it's very much, uh, very much, you know, it's artistic <laughs> more than scientific. It's, it's a lot of taking, taking, uh, data and seeing how it changes over time and then just responding accordingly. You don't really assume, um, you don't really assume every person is going to follow, uh, the, you know, the formula. Yeah. Uh, just yeah, looking for looking for solutions as you go there, and then one more principle I would say is rest. I'm I'm big on that. Uh, I think the way that most people train and combine that with playing their sport, a lot of them are are in a situation where if you just do that indefinitely for months on end, you end up in a situation where you will benefit from rest. Uh, now, if you are, you know, just starting out, or you know, you're maybe you don't play a sport and you're just starting out with like two workouts a week, then that you might be able to sustain for months on end and not really need rest. But the way most people are training is not necessarily uh, sustainable over time as far as, uh, you know, the stress on your body versus your recovery. Yeah. Normally the stress is out in front of the recovery and rest is going to be helpful. When you think about rest, do you think, I know it rests very much depends like obviously on what they're doing and who they are and all that stuff. But do you think about like, okay, you've been training five days a week, six days a week or lifting, whatever you're doing, you just need an extra day's rest. Or is there cases then where you just say, you just need to take like two weeks off and not do any of this stuff at all. Um, I don't usually recommend the full rest just because there is going to be some level of detraining that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's more like, okay, we need an easy week yeah, or maybe we need an easy two weeks or even an easy month. So I'm more of the, okay, let's do, let's do two short workouts per week for the next two weeks, you know, like that type of thing rather than, Hey, just, I'll see you in a month, you know? Yeah. Um, although there definitely have been cases of, oh yeah, 10 day trip to an Island somewhere, come back. I'm expecting, ah, uh, they're going to be out of shape, you know, a little detrained, maybe something's going to be hurting. Oh no, they're performing spectacularly. Okay. <laughs> that works too. Mm-hmm. Um, or even, yeah, I've had people tell me like, yeah, I was out for like six weeks with an injury. All I did was a little bit of rehab and then I came back and I was just faster than I used to be. You know, uh, there are cases like that where it, it's, it's a little more extreme than you expect to be effective immediately, but then it's, it just works out. Yeah. So, yeah. It's a, it's a dangerous space to be in though, because that can lead someone to think that I'm just better without doing this training. Yes. Uh, <laughs> right. that. But I think I had this conversation maybe with Kier on his podcast, actually, where he was talking about like some of the GOTA stuff and people are doing these funny drills and, and stuff and they feel better. We, we kind of summed it out that like, maybe they feel better just because they're just not doing the lifting for a little while. Yeah, right. Just took their body away rather than these drills. Now, maybe not. Like, maybe not. Fair enough. But six months later, like, they, they still have that strength. They still have those that five years of strength training in their system that's looking after them. But six months later, maybe that's that's leaving their body a little bit. They're detraining de- and they're more susceptible to injury now. And right, oh, they're just doing yeah. <laughs> they're just doing pinky toe drags and and. Uh... Yeah, <laughs> and uh, expecting to be fast and uh, and and uh, yeah, bulletproof or whatever. <laughs> a lot, like a lot of these systems are piggybacking off the back of 
someone who did like fairly good quality strength training for several years and then yes. decided I don't like this anymore I'm going to back off here and like that's actually not a bad idea to back off it but right. like the other stuff that you're doing is helping you yes <laughs> yeah that, yeah that comes up with the um the squat depth debate that makes me think of where people talk about oh I was doing full squats and I switched to quarter squats and then you know this good thing happened and I was like yeah, because you took a little break from full squatting, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, like, I'm not surprised. Like, quarter squats probably just aren't really affecting you that much. And uh, you're just getting, the, you know, you're reducing the stress on your body. So, you know, that produced some performance enhancement. Yeah. Um, that's my that's my opinion of it. I, hard, yeah. to, hard to prove that one way or another. But, yeah. You're, you're definitely a fan of full depth squatting, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and usually a back squat, I think. Yes. And your squat looks pretty good, I think. Uh, <laughs> if you say so. Sometimes it does. Yeah. Um, but you, you, do, you do a good bit of ele- heels elevated work, do you? Yes. Um, I personally actually don't need heels elevated because I have uh, pretty, pretty significant ankle mobility. Um, I do heel elevation because I would like to lose some ankle mobility. <laughs> yeah. I, I would like to. And the reason I say that is because, um, the, the elastic athletes, the like gifted top speed athletes that I've worked with, um, they all have relatively immobile ankles. Yeah. Um, not extremely immobile, but you know, none of them are, none of them are putting their knee five inches in front of their toes with their heel on the ground, you know? Yeah. And, um, so I would just, I'm just curious about the prospect of it. Can I possibly reverse from where I am? And if I, you know, just sprint and do plows a bunch and I don't do deep dorsiflexion, can I lose some ankle mobility and what would the influence of that be? So, yeah, that's just a personal experience or experiment on myself. That's interesting. I like for me, when I, when I improved my dorsiflexion, I felt like I got slower. Now, I also, in, in fairness, like we are saying earlier, I also wasn't sprinting as much at the time. But So, like, that's definitely part of it. But I definitely felt like something changed at my ankle when I improved my dorsiflexion. Um, so, it, it, look, I think it's very individual. It's impossible. It's probably impossible to prove. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of constantly, like, people who already have really good dorsiflexion, like, constantly doing the, the deepest knees over toes work that they can find and pulling on right they're pu- pulling on their achilles i i do think there could be some negative effects associated with it i just don't i just can't prove it yeah hard hard thing to to prove one way or the other yeah i mean if you took a research group and like just improved all their ankle mobility would there be a a negative impact on performance no you know yeah. not like across the group no yeah but there might be some individuals in there that were affected by it yeah, yeah, yeah. But then they might like some of them. Their knees might feel a bit better because of because they have more dorsiflexion and stuff. So that's sure. and the health and performance continuum that you're you're going to struggle with. Um, do Do you think how long have you been doing this like heels elevated thing to reduce ankle mobility? And do you think it has worked? Um, <laughs> <laughs> not. It's been a couple of years, maybe. Yeah. Um. And I haven't, uh, I haven't done it probably thoroughly enough because there's still be times where I'm 
maybe I just don't have anything to elevate my heels on that's immediately available. And then I'll just do, you know, squat, squat without it. Um, yeah, I also like, you know, I still do calf raises. So it's like, I'm probably not, I'm probably not doing extreme enough of a job. I don't go deep on the, on the seated calf raise, but, um, yeah, I haven't, I haven't made any significant transformation. There has been some moments though, where I was like, where like, I'll try an overhead squat uh, in bare feet and I'll be like, you know what? I think that's a little different than it used to be. <laughs> I'm a bit worse here. <laughs> but it's right. And that's what I'm going for. <laughs> yeah. I haven't, I haven't, that's, you're the first person I've seen say that in a long time. Um, I thought I was the only other person that maybe thought about that. Um, but I, I, you probably, like, you probably have had that good range for a long time. I went from having really shit range to really good ankle dorsiflexion range in a shorter amount of time and I, I felt like it didn't it did help me it did help my knees and stuff but it felt like I got a bit slower sure. yeah I do um so in Tim's podcast we I spoke to him about like or he mentioned the hip and knee dominant um stuff that you I think he he said he got it from you and you hear a lot of people talking about like hip versus knee dominance can you, you actually said to me, Tim didn't do a great job of, of, of backing himself up there. Um, can you give us like kind of your, your thoughts around, around that, how you classify athletes into either one of those and um, yeah, whatever your thoughts are there. Yeah. So basically it's just, you know, when we look at uh, a strength exercise, like a squat or a split squat, uh, does the person naturally move into a position that puts more load on the knees or or more load on the hips and um and i and i would say more load on the knees is actually probably extremely rare it's more like if, if they're pretty balanced out then i would call that knee dominant yeah. um and then if you're you know maybe the hips are like maybe a little bit more loaded than the knees i would call that like balanced um or you know maybe that's kind of like the theoretical ideal yeah. um and so, yeah, I mean, on, on a squat, you're looking at the bar path and if it moves, you know, basically directly over top of the knee joint, um, in the, in the bottom portion of the lift or like in the hard part of the lift, then that is, you know, that means the bar has a lot more of a moment arm at the hips and it has minimal moment arm at the knee. So you're, there's a lot more resistance torque at the hips. So that's why I call that hip dominant. Yeah. So um, it looks a little bit like a good morning. I mean, maybe a little bit, but it's not necessarily a bad squat. This is one of the things that, that came to mind when I heard your conversation with Tim was a hip dominant squat doesn't necessarily always look bad. It could look great, but if you look at the bar path on the side, it's just obvious the barbell is putting more resistance at the hips. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it doesn't have to be an ugly squat. Yeah. It's just a different bar path. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, so knee dominant really i would say your, your typical good squatter who stays upright well um they might be just balanced like in it, so it's just just a good a good theoretical ideal knee like actually knee dominant i i would say i've really only seen in um teenage males who have they've grown or or maybe it's not growth related but for whatever reason they're just really tight in the in the glutes or the hips in general. 
And so they're very undeveloped in the glutes and they don't have good range of motion. And so when they squat, they, they tend to put, you know, at least as much load on the knees as they do on the hips yeah. or, you know, it visibly what looks that way, I should say. I mean, I'm not in a biomechanics lab. Yeah. 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 Just a play. And, um, uh, yeah, so that uh, the, like actually knee dominant, I would say is pretty rare. Yeah. Um, but there are, you know, th- that person will look like a good squatter, but they will have, I would say some, uh, kind of unexpected lacks, uh, or unexpected gaps in their performance that you wouldn't expect from somebody who like, yeah, they look like a good athlete. They squat well, like, you know, this, and the, but then it's like, okay, well, their, their first couple steps of acceleration are super slow. Okay. They, they can't get out of a, out of a crouch stance very well at all. And their broad jump is like, um, you know, they have, let's say a, a 30 inch vertical, they have a less than eight foot broad jump, you know, like they just can't project horizontally. Okay. Um, so any, anything that involves like that more aggressive hip extension, you, exactly. you, you think those, are, those people would struggle with that? Yeah. The, the, like the extreme knee dominant, that's yeah. what I've seen. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're also, I would say I've seen even, even in just kind of the naturally good squatter, who's not, not necessarily got a problem at the hips, but they just may be naturally strong at the quads. Yeah. Um, those are the ones that I've seen go, you know, like locked out knee during the first couple of steps of acceleration. Okay. Which, so I know you, you talk about that delaying the extension. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so again, as your conversation with Tim I, and you were, you were talking about delaying the extension and the squat pattern. And, and for me, what I've seen is the naturally good squatter is strong at the quads and they're the ones that are too much knee focused in a, in a sprint in the acceleration. So too it's not necessarily knee, too much knee extension. Yeah. Or like early knee extension, early knee extension. Yeah. Yeah. And they're the, sorry, I get this right now. So you, you're there to dare the people who we're saying like, look, the squat is more vertical displacement. It's more up and down. Right. Um, yeah. Whereas yeah. I've seen plenty of, you know, hip dominant kind of more bent over squatters who they could be great, great. Uh, first few steps of acceleration. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll have to I'll, I'll have to kind of have a look at it a bit closer and see that where where it kind of carries over. The the yeah, I suppose the athletes who are squatting and they're using their hips more, like they're in more of an extension pattern. They're probably they probably are already a sprinter. You know what I mean? Like they a lot a lot of them are are sprinters. Like they're they're not sure. locked into extension, but they love they love extension. They're powerful athletes there, mm-hmm. um, and that's and that's what we're seeing there. So I guess that's your where your point of contention with that maybe was where they're actually they are delaying knee extension because they're getting their their hip extension. And that isn't just me talking to myself now and talking. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, just trying to get it right in my in my own head of what you're seeing. The um, but so what? What would a session look like? Maybe like this is just just off the cuff. Like what would a session? If you were trying to get a, so I won't say a knee dominant athlete to look to to kind of train the hips a bit more. Well, you can if you want, but you're saying you don't see as many of those type of athletes then. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So what would a session then that's more of a hip dominant athlete to, to start to load the knees more like or is there is there example exercises and not just strength wise, maybe it is now, but could it be like that there is some mobility deficits there that actually they can't get the knees forward, not just not just because of strong quads, but like the ankles and stuff like that is one. And then two strength exercises that you might choose, and three. Is there plyometric variations then you might choose to actually load them a bit more? Yeah. So, um, one, I would say the mobility factor, I, I mean, I do elevate the heels to try to take that out mm-hmm. so that that's not the limiting factor. Um, so that, yeah, we can just, you know, we can get that knee forward right away, uh, without having to like, you know, work on ankle mobility a bunch. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't say I, I go to the mobility direction. Although, I mean, I do, I guess if we want to talk about, yeah, I mean, pronation things. I mean, I, I, I do barefoot warmups and I look at the feet and I, I might have people do like inward and outward rolling of the feet, you know, things like that. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, not necessarily trying to increase dorsiflexion range a bunch, Yeah. but um, then in the strength department, it will be okay. Yeah. Let's, let's do the best squat we can and let, let's coach it up well. Um, and, and that might, you know, depending on the level of the athlete, it might be just like, like start with a goblet squat instead. Uh, but the issue with the goblet squat is, you know, the load is usually forward and the forward load then is not loading your, your quads more. Yeah. Um, you know, we want to keep the load back. So I, I do, I go to the back squat and then try to hit an upright back squat. And, um, and again, it's about the bar path. It's not so much just, Oh, do they look upright? It's a, where is the bar located? Um, that's assuming you have a decent amount of weight. I mean, if it's just an empty bar, then that's not necessarily the, the key factor in wh- where you're loading, but, um, yeah. So trying to go to a back squat as well as we can. And then, yeah, usually obviously with the hip dominant athlete, they're not probably getting as much quad development from the squat as you want. So then you go to, or I go to things like a pistol squat where even when you allow all the manipulations, uh, you know, like hands forward, foot forward, uh, bent over, like it's still a quad exercise mm-hmm. when you're on one leg and that's heel elevated as well. Um, I'll do it a knees forward split squat. And, uh, and that one, you know, since you have two points of contact on the ground, you can take that front heel off the ground and just be on the ball of your foot and yeah, intentionally pushing the knee forward. Um, and then like the sissy squat type of type of movement, you know, with yeah knees forward, bodies bending backward. Um, and then, yeah, I guess those are the those are probably the go-to strength ones. Mm-hmm. Um, I've definitely yeah kind of come up with others at times, but mm-hmm. yeah, some you know some form of those those type those type of uh, exercises. And then yeah, I do try to get the the plyometric or the athletic realm. Um, so it's yeah, we're not just developing slow strength here, but we're actually we're getting some fast loading too. Mm-hmm. And, uh, for that, I would say any kind of hopping variation is one that I go to because that, that's one that I've noticed where the, the people with the strong quads, they do great on those. Yeah. I think when you're on one leg, you know, the knee is really the weak point. Yeah. Um, and 
And so it's, it kind of highlights the need for quad strength. So yeah, any kind of variation hopping on one leg, I will do, you know, hops where you're pulling your foot up. So you have to get off the ground higher. Uh, I'll do hops for distance or maybe like, you know, maximize like max distance on one leg hopping is, is a pretty hard exercise. So I might do like, okay, let's get, let's get to 80%, 90% of what we could do, but then stay a little more rhythmic and bouncy, you know, as opposed to just like, it can get really ugly when you start going for max distance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah there's a lot yeah. of breaking forces obviously then as well. Like, yeah. Uh, and then I am, um, so if you're trying to load the knee then a little more in the quads and then variations, are you thinking, okay, I'm not, I'm not like going to be too hard on them saying I need you to get off the ground quicker or be stiffer or more reactive or anything like that, because then you're going to load the ankle more. Are you happy for them to maybe spend just that tiny bit longer on the floor? Um, I, I wouldn't say I'm happy with it. No, I, no, I still go for the quickness. Mm -hmm. Um, because I, I haven't seen any, like, I haven't seen really a separation between uh getting quick off the ground and then having the quad ability yeah like i think the quickness does require and it, it may not seem like it because you're maybe not bending your knee as much yeah but um i think you're still training yeah. training uh the quad yeah the 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 recoil there yeah. um even even when you are trying to be fast off the ground yeah so now i do uh also do i'll do a single leg standing vertical which is really going to be probably a hip driven movement but then the landing back on one leg okay yeah. that's that's quad and that's not um it's not quick um i do decelerations mm -hmm. which are a lot of quad mm -hmm. um and then yeah even just some uh yeah some other like landing type work yeah or where uh, yeah we're trying to hit hit the quad but yeah we're we're hitting it fast instead of uh with a bunch of weight yeah. um hopping, yeah i guess the hopping i suppose is if it's good it's good it doesn't need to be slower and like more deeper joint angles if it looks good it looks good and then good right. good means you're working all the muscles that you need to work and all the tendons or whatever that you need to work um yeah i was i was kind of like in the rehab process if i have a knee a knee client and I feel like there's weakness in the quads and there's maybe they're maybe keeping that leg a bit stiffer like a poker they're trying to not actually load into the knee then i will go into like them them deeper joint ranges in their kind of sure. jumping type work so like skater hops and stuff like that i'm not saying like be stiff like i'm actually saying don't be afraid to sink into the movement and load yep. load all these deeper joint angles um but that would probably come after i do like loads of pogos and stuff like that where I can get some some kind of plyometric um stimulus into their body but it's a more ankle driven movement where they're not going to actually be they're they're not afraid to do that yet you know yeah yeah that makes sense absolutely um I would say yeah the the skater the skater jumps is a, is a another one that I do use um I guess I don't think of it as like the knee loading but it it, it is a great example of that yeah um uh bounding to which is really in the same realm as hopping um but again it's the same uh same pattern where it's yeah i see the the people who are strong at the knee and have good good balance in their legs they get off the ground fast on bounding mm -hmm. um so then yeah i, I mean i want to 
see that from those hip dominant athletes as well. Like try to develop it. Yeah. Um, and then, oh yeah, lunge jumps is another one. Like lunge jumps or squat jumps, where that is getting to that deeper, uh, deeper knee bending, but with faster loading. Yeah, those are all all in the toolbox. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. And did you did you? I just did a podcast with Matt McInnes Watson. He's um, oh yeah, he's from Plus Plyos. Um, yep. He's not not as much big into like SSC world, just all like plyometrics, and he was a track athlete, and he has he like. Like like everyone else, really, I suppose he like he just has his tiers of different movements, and he has a, a deep tier where like you just go through all them deep joint joint ranges. And I I didn't know about it until we had the podcast, and I was looking at his Instagram beforehand. But I really yeah. like that. I really like that stuff. I really really like it. I think um I think you probably you probably are using a lot of that stuff and just. Yeah, it's 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 an important. It's it's easy to forget about that stuff. Is basically what I'm saying. Yeah. And it's actually really influential, um, even just on strength, yeah. uh, particularly for, you know, relatively untrained people. I mean, you could, you get the, some major lower body soreness from lunge jumps, you know? <laughs> um, and I've had a plenty of kids who, you know, did two or three sets at the end of their workout and then saw me the next time, like, yo, my glutes or my quads, like, what, what did you do to me? And I'm like, yeah, that's lunge jumps for you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or I think also in the strength maintenance realm, if you if you are getting away from weights uh, with an advanced athlete, you can maintain a lot with that type of movement. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool, man. And that's um, that's something I wanted to ask you about is like you had a post about the faster eccentrics um, and. I'll, I'll, I'll leave you explain what you're saying, but um, maybe in them, maybe in them deeper ranges of motion, like that's uh, like a lunge jump. I'm actually, I actually get some of my fast eccentric there as well. So can you, um, can you explain what you were saying in your Instagram post? Basically you were saying it's a, everything shouldn't be slow eccentric, right? Yeah. So there's, uh, I mean, I've done a number of posts on this, so yeah. <laughs> hard, I don't know exactly which one you're referring to, but uh I think it was one of the first ones, just, just in general, like the broad concept here of why we're, why we should be thinking about actually like using momentum and, and yeah. loading faster in, so, in, not in our, in strength training. Yeah. So it was, uh, you know, basically trying to, I, I was seeing this narrative, um, of, you know, trying to train eccentric strength and people were doing slow eccentric, uh, strength training mm -hmm. with, you know, usually that it was, you know, done with like lighter weights, like 50, 60%, something like that. And talking about, you know, th these are eccentric split squats or, you know, we're trying to work on eccentric strength. And the key thing to understand is that stopping the weight and reversing it is actually where we get the strongest stimulus in strength training uh, on your muscles, like the strongest structural stimulus. Mm -hmm. And Stopping something that's moving fast is a lot harder than stopping something that's moving slow. And, and yeah, I mean, we could put that in physics terms like momentum and impulse and peak force or whatever, if you want to, but it's just, I mean, you can really just go common sense. It's easier to stop it if it's moving slow than if it's moving fast. Um, so while going slow is actually, it's a way to be more gentle on your muscles when you, when you stop the weight and turn it around. Mm -hmm. And that might be good. Like you might want to do that at times, um, especially, yeah, like introducing an, an exercise if you're trying to, yeah, not just go 
as violent as possible right away. You know, like if you're starting a training program um, or to learn the movement, you want to make sure you have good control. <clears throat> like, yeah, you know, that makes sense. It's not a bad thing, but it's actually not how you're going to get eccentric strength. Yeah. E eccentric strength is going to come from you are trying as hard as you can and the load is overcoming you. It's forcing your muscles to lengthen. That's, that's how I define eccentric overload is where, yeah, it's it, the, the load is forcing your muscles to lengthen and you can't, <laughs> you can't stop it. Um, and so you get that, you can do that with super maximal loads, right? You can put 120% of your, of your max on the, on the bar and then just take it as slow as you can on the way down, but you just physically can't stop it. Or you can use momentum. You can go down even, it doesn't even have to be fast. It's just natural speed. You go down, the weight has some momentum. Then when you start to stop it, it's going to force your muscles to lengthen further before you actually do. And it's in that, that period where they're being forced to lengthen that uh, you're getting the strongest stimulus on your muscles. Yeah. Um, and so that was my thing is basically like, this is actually how you're going to get eccentric strength is with you know, natural speed lifting, or even you, you can do, if you have a good lifter, who's got good control, you can do intentionally fast drops. Yeah. And that's actually like a really powerful stimulus. Um, and you, I mean, you can get a lot out of one, not that much weight and two, you can get out a lot, of, a lot out of not that many reps when you do that. Yeah. And yeah, so that applies to strength training. It also does apply to the plyometric realm, like even body weight, like we're talking about on those lunge jumps, even body weight, when you're dropping from, let's say, a lunge jump, if you're a decent athlete, might be like 60 centimeters in the air. You're dropping from that straight into a deep lunge position and then reversing. It's mm. actually like a really powerful stimulus there. Mm. Um, and then even, even your, your sort of more classical plyometrics where you're faster off the ground, you know, you have a bunch of momentum. You're hitting the ground and reversing fast you are taking advantage of that, that momentum-based loading, particularly in the quads and the calves. Um, so you're getting some of that stimulus there. So yeah, I mean, if you, let's say you play a field sport or something and that's all you do for a few months and then you go and you hit three sets of 10, uh, like rhythmic jumps fast off the ground as high as you can, you know, it'll tear your, quad, uh, tear your uh, calves up. You know, you can get extremely sore from that. Because it's a it's a stimulus that's way way more intense than what you're accustomed to, um, so yeah, that's the slow versus fast eccentrics topic. Yeah. yeah, I think that's an important topic, and people understand this when it comes to Nordics because they're say say you're doing Nordics for the first time, that's that's easy eccentric because that's a super maximal load there because people can't yep. stop themselves in the East, in the Nordic right. But mm -hmm. when I get strong enough to actually have an eccentric and a concentric, then my eccentric and my Nordic should be let myself fall and catch myself at the bottom right before right. I get down, right? Yes, you're going to create that overload even though you don't have the super maximal weight. Yes, so there's what you're yep. saying about the, the two ways to do that. Yep. So in the squat, then my the, the, my option there is load up 120% of the bar and and um try and control try and go as slow as i can going down but then i i have to obviously unload the bar at the yep. bottom or i just have less weight but i just drop and have to catch it at the bottom and reverse it right right do that with 70 percent yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 cool that's 
no, that that that's that helps clear it up in my mind as well. Definitely, definitely does. Um, it's not something that's talked about very much for some reason, actually. Now that you now that you mentioned, but the the Nordic thing, it does make sense to people. Like that is centric mm-hmm. because I'm actually not strong enough to stop myself. Right, but yeah, I mean, with you know, with momentum, you're actually not strong enough to stop yourself right away. <laughs> yeah, you, know, you you do yeah. eventually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. another thing I would mention here is uh, flywheel training, and you know, there's tons of evidence for for it being really effective and uh, at a lot of different things. And that is the same concept. It's momentum based loading. The flywheel isn't that heavy. <laughs> you know, that's not it's not more than your max squat. Um, but you get it moving really fast to the point where you can't stop it right away when you when you're sinking into that squat or, or whatever movement you're doing. That momentum forces your muscles to lengthen, and that's eccentric overload, and that's a powerful stimulus. Yeah. So yeah, if anyone is a fan of flywheel training or has read all the research on flywheel training, that's actually tapping into the exact same principle. Yeah. Cool, man. Awesome. Would you do that with Nordics then? Would you, when someone is strong enough, then would you like let them let them just fall and try and catch themselves? I would. I haven't worked with an athlete who's that strong. <laughs> yeah. 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 But uh, definitely, um, I use it on hip hinges, uh, RDLs, yeah, and uh, and then also like other other knee flexion things, um, you know, like even just like a fast hamstring curl on yeah. a uh, on a on a machine, or uh, like the straight leg hip thrust, or you know, kind of like those variations um, where you're doing like a bridge of some sort and then and then getting some hamstring work that way you can get those moving up and down fast or you can jump off of the box and catch yourself yeah, um, yeah, yeah. you know like do it rhythmically like that and you can create that same situation with the the momentum yeah yeah so there's different different ways to do it yeah again mentioning Kier here i think he had a webinar on his thing before they were doing like kettlebell swings with athletes and at the top the coach was like pushing the kettlebell back down as fast as they yeah. could yeah stuff like makes that. sense Mm. the um so question on oscillatory work i don't know how big a fan you are if you use it at all but then you think a lot of the benefit that is coming from oscillatory isometrics and stuff like that actually is just that like eccentric portion which i'm actually for the first time i'm actually loading fast and i'm trying to change direction quickly or yeah that's where that's where i'm starting to think of where the actual benefit from these oscillations is yeah, um, I would gravitate toward that being the the benefit, um, but I'm also biased, you know. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, and, and I don't use them because I want to do more of a complete lowering. So I want to come all the way up and then and then get more of the momentum if 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 that's the approach I'm trying to take. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't personally use them, but I would also say I mean your basic like just your isometric has also proven like to be effective for some purposes, um, like just getting stronger or you know a little uh, sh- like structural development. So um, in that sense, I would say you know eccentric overload or you know the momentum based loading. It's obviously not the only thing that works. <laughs> um, it's just it's just a very powerful tool. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, since isometrics, you know, people have done uh, 
split squat isometrics daily and found themselves jumping higher after that. If that works, then maybe an oscillatory isometric also works for some reason other than the fast movement, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, I think really in the rehab process, it's something that's probably not done, which is that faster loading um, yeah. should be done more, that faster loading and that faster change of direction and, and you're making use of momentum. I did, I, yeah. It definitely isn't the beginning of rehab though. That's, no. <laughs> that's the no. Yeah. You, it's hard yeah, because we're, we're intentionally creating high forces so if you're rehabbing yeah you got to start start gentle <laughs> start yeah. low force but yeah, yeah you want to try to get there yeah i wonder then is that like in them in them what's the difference here between then i'm just trying to think out loud here so what i do sometimes with it like again a knee athlete is like load up the trap bar pretty heavy and they're just standing in it and they just do like a, a little like like a snap down except they don't care if they do it go into a hinge like but they just land on a single leg in that position is there and i usually get them to like try and stick that landing on a single leg with the trap mm-hmm. bar in their hand is there a case to be made for not just getting them to stick it? Like, so just, okay, come back, come straight back up versus just actually stick that landing in the isometric there. Or am I splitting hairs? Yeah, I think, uh, and I, I wish I had, I wish I had the citation on hand, but I yeah. think you do get a little bit different uh, uh, muscle tendon complex mechanics there. Um, where when you're sticking the landing, the muscle is going to yield more. Whereas if you're trying to reverse it, the muscle is going to stiffen and the tendon is going to uh, lengthen and then snap back. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are some, I think, yeah, it, it is a different stimulus um, and a different, uh, yeah, some different mechanics happening there. I don't, I wouldn't view that as a reason not to do one. Um you know, and, and I also think you still are getting if the if the landing is challenging, then you're still getting that momentum based loading on the muscle. So it's um, that's still good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think there is a difference there, and I, I I think you do again. Maybe the landing is a precursor, right? You like you want to get to if we are talking about rehab, you want to get to the the re, the rebound. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I, I don't know if there's that like. I wouldn't say there's ever a reason to stop doing just the landing, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, like that's, it's something I had in like, I did a knee pain webinar for people, a couple, or a, yeah, just a knee rehab webinar a couple of years ago during COVID when it started and I had them trap bar drops in it and we were just sticking the landing. And I was talking more about like just co-contractions and, and stuff and not, just just not sinking further into the knee when you're, when you, when you're able to stop that weight, stop it. Yeah. But, Maybe now, maybe, maybe when I think back, maybe some of the benefit is just actually maybe the concentric movement could be, could be part of it and actually part of that benefit as well, rather than just sticking the landing. Anyway, that's just me thinking out loud. Um, Can you, can you talk a little bit about specificity then? Because um, I'm going to guess that like your, some of your thoughts around this are, and you mentioned it a little bit earlier where specificity is the sport itself or whatever you're doing. And then it looks to me like your training is quite unspecific with your athletes then where you're just building general strength. Would I, would I be correct in saying that? And secondly, 
what's the what's your thought process behind that right so yeah first of all that is largely correct um and so yeah the 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 idea is you know we get specific ability from your sport from the athletic activities you're trying to train and then um when it comes to strength training you're really just trying to get general strength and the combination of those two things is what produces you know great performance um that, so that's kind of a theory and then the question is well what happens in practice and from my i guess yeah 13 years training people now um my experience has been when the specific side is in place meaning somebody has a good let's just say if we're talking about jumping a good jumping background maybe maybe jumping and other and, and sport play you know like they have a good athletic background and they've jumped a good amount and uh, they have good jumping coordination when those things are in place then general strength tends to transfer very well and and then even even um again you know as i've gotten into the speed realm of the past past uh probably eight to ten years um somebody who's you know they've been a track athlete they've played other maybe other field sports uh, or maybe even like some basketball too whatever they have a good athletic background they're a track athlete all these things are in place all these specific things are in place even with the gap between deep squatting and sprinting you know i mean we're like two opposite ends of a spectrum here um deep squat can still translate to sprinting quite well you know I, i've seen it happen um and so you have this you have this concern of okay i mean yeah deep range strength training is very very different from sprinting it's a very different stimulus um and yet when we have again your whole life has been about specific ability and you add in once a week deep squatting you know and then maybe another day is a split squat or maybe another day is a, a box squat or something you know when you you add in a, just a small reasonable amount of general strength training um it translates quite well typically it's not like it's not a big issue of oh man we we squatted for a month and now we got slow you know like it's not not really an issue yeah um now that's so I, I would say like that's the scenario you want right where you don't have to think about specificity and i would say yeah a lot of athletes have that um a lot of you know a lot of good athletes i would say don't have to think about that as much um and this is you know this is all the evidence again for the the, the conjugate method the west side barbell like oh look we took our powerlifting scheme and we had just applied it to a football player and his 40 yard dash got faster and all this you know it's like it's the testimonial right um and so that is that is a scenario that exists and that's what we hope for is we just train general strength and everything gets better simple simple thing simple process um so th that exists and i think we, we need to acknowledge that it exists um however other scenarios also exist so if you don't have maybe some maybe some of the talent and maybe you don't have some of the background in the thing you're trying to develop 
then that general strength tends to not transfer as well. Hmm. So like in my world, you know, I'll get the um, 25, 30, 35-year-old guy who decides he wants to jump higher mm-hmm. and, and he doesn't have the background. Uh, maybe played a sport of some sort, but maybe, you know, maybe wasn't spectacular at it. Um, without the, you know, without the genetic talent, maybe didn't jump as much, right? Like if you, if you're not good at jumping, you don't go out and play basketball the way that, uh, the way that what's his name? Zion plays, you know, <laughs> you, you play, you play the game differently. So you don't jump as much while playing. Yeah. You probably don't go on a dunk journey. If you, you know, you don't think you have the talent and it just doesn't, you know, you're not any good at it. You don't go on that dunk journey. You never develop that, that history of jumping. Now those specific abilities aren't really present. So then you could easily add 50 pounds to your squat and not jump any higher mm-hmm. in, in that context. Um, and, but so that's, it's, it's not really a problem with the squat. It's an issue of, you know, there's other things not in place. Yeah. The coordinative aspects of the skill itself are not there. Right. Coordinative aspects, um, maybe. And the quality. Yeah, just, just rate of enforcement, rate of yeah. force development, uh, the elasticity, you know, all these things might not be there. Yeah. Um, so then it's actually, in my opinion, it's that athlete who needs to be more concerned about specificity yeah. and think, okay, well, if I, you know, if I jump once per week and I squat twice per week and I just sort of, you know, I'm trying to complement jumping with sprinting, but, or with, with us uh, jumping with squatting, but I don't really have the massive background of jumping. Then, you know, I'm kind of just pulling myself in two different directions and I'm, and it's just can equate to not a whole lot of, of spectacular results like maybe that's the person who needs to be more specific who needs to just jump a lot you know um but that's tough because you have you know a 25 year old or whatever who starts jumping a lot i mean it's just waiting for knee pain to happen right yeah um so i feel like i'm getting a little off track here but they're just kind of getting lost here but um that's okay yeah, you know, there's just there's all these different scenarios that can happen, yeah. and I, I think yeah, we need to acknowledge specificity and you know the the differences between a certain type of strength training and athleticism. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a lot of cases where it's it really works well anyway, you know, despite those differences. <coughs> um, it's easy to get lost yeah. in this topic. <laughs> I, should, yeah. I did a, I was asked this question, kind of asked this question for our membership site. And like such a hard thing to even frame when you started talking about specificity. So I, I just wrote this down. So I kind of had a classification. I tried to figure it out a little bit, just sat down for two minutes. And the classification that I kind of came out with was for, for those guys was like the sport itself, obviously, is the most specific thing. Then something that looks like the sport. So not playing basketball, but just jumping and, and running and things like this. Yep. Then I had like the attractors, which is something that Frank Bosch talks a little bit. Other people talk about as well, which is like the, the hip lock and stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Um, then I had like maybe the muscle activity. So like if the argument is, okay, the hamstrings are the hamstring, hamstrings are maybe behaving isometrically when I go and sprint, then maybe in the gym I can train isometric hamstring strength. 
Um, and then from there, I kind of went to specific joint angles, which I don't think are particularly important to train in the gym. Only really if you're pairing it with the specific, with the specific muscle activity, then maybe I think it can be, it, it can be helpful. Um, what's your stance on like training the, the attractors then? Yeah. So that's where I would say I'm, I'm very skeptical. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so for example, yeah, the, uh, okay. We found out on the jump takeoff that the muscles, uh, largely act isometrically because they stiffen right away. Therefore let's go isometric in the gym. I'm not sold on that. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's basically just this idea of if you're trying to be specific, you can't be any more specific than the sport. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's, it's tough to talk about because the the body is so complex and there's so many factors that go into it, but it's like, if we're doing a, a strength exercise, whatever about it is specific can't possibly be developed by that more than it already is by the sport. Yeah. The only way it can work is if there's something general, something transferable. Yeah. Now that's just a theory, but I think it actually shows up. Um, I mean, it, it, people aren't really exploring that exact thing in research. So it's, it's tough, but it, it does actually show up. Um, in some evidence i mean you have the case of the case of uh you know a group of people do a, a set of or a, a training program on quarter squats and improve their quarter squats by like 40 percent and don't jump any higher mm-hmm. and it's like okay so what you know what happened to the joint angle specific uh, specificity value you know um and, and so i'll give yeah. you i'll give you, I'll give you Bosch's answer for that yeah. No, I can't speak for him, but what I t- what I would expect he would say is it's to do with uh, muscle slack. So they're actually using using weight, using load, external load to help them overcome muscle slack. And then when you take away that barbell, they're actually he would say they're worse at overcoming muscle slack than when they go and try and jump. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> that would that would I expect that would be so. If you see his um. He talks about uh, velocity-based training and all the studies, and he says that um, rate of force development, all the studies are done using measuring external load and their rate of force development improves using external load. And he says that that's not something that you should be, you should be measuring. Like if you want to see improvements, you need to see it with external load. Uh, Sure. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, I I like that thought. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that that opens a whole can of worms as far as like interpreting physics outputs in research. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like the thing that comes to mind is uh, uh, barbell deadlift versus hex bar deadlift. Hex bar has higher forces. Does that mean it's a better exercise? No. Not in my opinion. Now, it might be a better exercise for some people for, for some reason, but it's not because of the force because strength exercises are not about ground force. You know, that like that's not the, that's not the objective of a strength exercise. If, you know, you're trying to get muscular force and the whole idea with strength exercises, you put yourself in a weak position so that you have to generate a lot of muscular force yeah. 
to get out of it. But when you put yourself in a weak position, your ground forces are going to be low. Yeah. That's like the whole idea of strength training. I mean, if we, we could take a rack pull higher and higher, the, the forces are going to keep going higher because you're putting yourself in a, a stronger position. That doesn't make it a better exercise. Yeah. So, yeah, that, I actually like that thought by him as far as, okay, if we improve our, yeah, maybe it's a explosive pull of some sort. We improve our, our RFD on that. How meaningful is that for sprinting or jumping? Um, for yeah, me, so I, I like that thought. For me, Bosch has a lot of good thoughts um, on like how you actually measure transfer of training and all of that conversation. I think he has a lot of good thoughts. And then I think people don't go into that and look at it because they don't agree with some of the practical aspects of how he trains athletes. Sure, but yeah. I think, which, which I, like, I don't agree with some of that as well, how he does it, but I do appreciate he's, he's trying to solve the problem of transfer of training and it's a very hard problem to solve. I appreciate like that and his training theory and he's trying to figure out what's actually happening at the muscles when we sprint and the tendons and stuff and yeah. I appreciate, I, I really do appreciate that. And I think people should look at some, not all of his work, don't take it as gospel, but like people will stay away from it because they see a Bosch clean and they don't like it. So you can separate two ideas, I think. Um, yeah. Can I, can I talk a little bit more about the specificity thing? Yeah, please. So one of the, one of the points that I, I didn't quite get to was, uh, you know, the scenario where you develop general strength and it works for a while and then it stops working. And or, or maybe, it, you know, and when I say stops working, I mean, the, the thing that I think you tend to see is, OK, this person was jumping higher off an approach. They were sprinting faster. They were hopping and bounding farther, like everything was getting better. And now those things are changing or maybe they're, maybe they're stopping and maybe they're getting a little bit worse, but, oh, well, our standing vertical is still going up. Broad jump still going up. Uh, power clean is still going up. So we're getting better at some explosive things, but we're getting better at slower explosive things, you know? So we're still getting transfer somewhere, but it's not showing up where we really want it. Um, in that situation, Another strategy, okay, so one that I've talked about is, you know, like not lifting or dramatically reducing it. Um, I think another, another piece of that, though, is moving in the more specific direction with your strength training. But what I call that is you're being less disruptive. In other words, you are not, okay, we're, we're moving from a deep squat to a 90-degree angle squat. Not because I want to train specific 90-degree joint angle strength, but just because it's going to be less disruptive because we're not lengthening the muscles out as far. So it's more about the removal of a stimulus yeah. while still trying <laughs> to maintain some strength than it is about we're getting uh, that, that value from the specificity. Yeah. Um, and I would say the same thing when it comes to the contraction mode. Um, yeah. So maybe we switched over from we were doing deep hip hinges um, and let's say seated hamstring curls. So so we're doing our hip extension and knee flexion at long muscle length. Um, now we switch over to uh, the straight leg hip thrust 
or and maybe we do it as an isometric, not because I think that the isometric component is going to transfer <laughs> to sprinting so much, but it is going to be less disruptive. Yeah. You know, it's it's a more similar stimulus. So we're, we're, we're removing the extremely different stimulus and that might help us adapt in the more specific direction. Um, so yeah, it's not that I don't use any of those type of like strategies. It's just how I view it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I would say let's, yeah, let's say we have a young athlete who, um, who hasn't strength trained much and then they start doing, let's say they're a track athlete. So they're training speed and they start doing, um, <clears throat> a straight leg hip thrust ISO or yeah. So like the Alex Natera hip hip, uh, hip ISO, mm -hmm. um, is that going to have much of a performance benefit for them? I would say only if it makes them generally stronger, Yeah. which because if they're an untrained athlete, maybe it can, you know, maybe it doesn't require much to make them stronger. Um, but it's, it's still, it's not that potent of a stimulus for generous general strength. So like, Long term, I'm not expecting that exercise to do a whole lot for them, um, even though it's highly transferable. Because I, again, I'm not I'm not really buying that specific strength carryover to sprinting mm -hmm. narrative. It's more like, okay, after we get the hamstrings strong with RDLs and hamstring curls, now we do this just to not lose strength and stop messing with our speed. Yeah. So yeah, it's just it's just viewing it a little bit differently. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I, I wouldn't, I don't know, I don't think Alex Natera would disagree with that, actually. I would say, yeah. you know, general I, strength first. I would say so. And I would say that some of the reason that he uses that work and some of the reason that I like, do like some of that work, that isometric work and the overcoming isometrics, the pushes and stuff is for certain athletes who strength training, like in season, seems to beat them up. They just, their body just feels like shit. And I just think actually, okay, here you can do some isometrics. You can push really hard. Like you're getting that nervous system stimulus, but you're not getting the negative effects along with it. So yep. that's where I would start to see some of that work becoming very, very valuable for, I use that with some, some like GA players and stuff. Just if they squat, if they, if they do any type of squat, any type of deeper squat, their back feels like shit after it. And sure, yeah. It's not, it's not, it's not worth me trying to clean it up like that week. All right, here's how you actually squat better. It's just like, no, just take it out yeah. for you have a game this weekend. Yeah. Uh, and that's yeah, that's the fatigue, the fatigue and just the the recovery, that's a whole different layer to this conversation. Uh, as far as yeah, maybe we do things that are yeah, I mean, more specific, but maybe we're doing them just because they're less fatiguing yeah. at times. Yeah. 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 And then the only other thing I would say on the specificity stuff is like some of the attractors and stuff that Bosch talks about. I think just this is more for people listening, I suppose, but I think it can be sometimes valuable to think of that work in the rehab process when someone can't run and when they can't jump. And that's where you will see me using some of those things. Now, whether it's about again, like getting being specific to that or whether it's just exposing their themselves like to those positions and getting some of those feelings that they might get in the sport. It's probably just more as much as anything, just building confidence and feeling like 
Yeah, these, that position sure. kind of feels like this other position that I'll be in in a month's time when I'm back playing. So um, I think in the rehab process, specificity maybe in the gym maybe has a little bit more room to play, but still got to build the strength. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Like if you can't do the thing that you want to do, mm-hmm. maybe you do something that's sort of like it, but just, you yeah. know, it, it's, it fits your stage at that time. Yep. Yeah, exactly. That's where... I think it's nearly the opposite of what Bosch thinks. To be honest, I, I should. I'd love to get Bosch on. I'd love to try and get see, <laughs> but I, I, don't, I don't think he would. But the opposite of what he thinks, I think, is like when the better an athlete is, the more specific they need to be in their gym work. And yeah, I'm, I'm probably the exact opposite to that. Yep, I would. I would agree. Um, yeah, it's a, again that's part of the narrative like general strength as a beginner and then you have to get more advanced. And that's, that's another part of that. I've tried to like, eh, try to push back on. Yeah. Um, one, because untrained athletes can get better easily more or they can get stronger more easily. So mm-hmm. you can actually do some, you know, more specific or less disruptive strength training and get dramatic results from that. You know I mean? You get, Teenage males get on a plyometric program and they'll, they could increase their max squat by a hundred pounds, you know, <laughs> um, that, you know, they're just more trainable from a lesser stimulus. So it's actually a good idea to use, uh, sort of that. Yeah. Not the extreme general end of the spectrum. Cause if you can get the general from something easy yes. and, and fun, you know, then, then that's actually makes more sense. Yeah. Or like jump squats, you know, we take untrained athletes and research and put on jump squats. It's like, Oh, their power increased by 40% in six weeks. You know, it's like, it's dramatic. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, if you take somebody who's been squatting for 10 years and they do jump squats, like probably not gonna, you know, do much for them if they've already been, you know, playing a sport, doing plows and squatting for years, yeah. jump squats are sort of an insignificant stimulus for them probably. Yeah. So yeah, it's the the advanced athletes that have to go further down that that extreme general side in order to keep making changes. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, all right, brother. Um, if you have any other thoughts, now is your chance. Or if you want to just um, let people know where they can find you and check you out, then um, you can do that. Uh, yeah, I think I'll I'll shut it down here. <laughs> <laughs> But a lot of talking. I'm not, I'm not a talkative guy. So, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, jump.science and then speed.science zero on Instagram. Those are my two accounts. Why is the zero there? Did someone else have speed? somebody else? Yeah, man. <laughs> somebody else has it. And it's not even like a speed training thing or it's, I don't even remember. It's like a, it's just a random person. Oh, and, uh, Way back when jump science with, so I, I, when I first got on Instagram, I had to do jump underscore science because jump science was, uh, you know, some parent posting their two little kids on a trampoline. So I couldn't, I couldn't get that username. Yeah. They hadn't been, they hadn't been on Instagram in years, but the, you know, I couldn't get it. So I had to go jump underscore jump dot science is better though. Yeah. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, okay. I really appreciate you coming on Daniel. Um, I, I and appreciate all the stuff that you do. I think that people should definitely go and check out your Instagram. Tim, I think Tim called you a training terminator, and um, yeah. <laughs> like it, there's, there's some really good stuff there, so definitely worth checking out. Yeah, it's been, been fun talking to you, man.